Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, uh, the Health, Medicine, and Bioscience Edition. And Professor Richard J. Schwab, uh, he's the head of sleep medicine at University of Pennsylvania. And we're going to be talking about uh, the pathogenesis of obstructive sleep apnea. So, Rich, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Oh, my pleasure. Well, good. Um, well, first of all, uh, I've done a, a bunch of calls on sleep apnea, but what, is the, what does that mean, the pathogenesis of sleep apnea, first of all? So we don't understand why people have sleep apnea. You don't obviously have sleep apnea when you're awake. Something happens when you go off to sleep. And your airway gets smaller, and, and snoring is just vibration of the soft palate or the usual thing that hangs in the back of your throat in a narrowed airway. And as your airway gets smaller, you start to have partial airway closure and then eventually complete airway closure, which is apnea. The why to that, why does that happen, totally clear. And I think a lot of it's related to the size of the, of the structures in your mouth or even potentially the craniofacial skeleton if it's small, which puts you at risk for developing sleep apnea because if you have big soft tissue structures like your tongue or your soft palate or the lateral walls, which are the structures on the sides of your airway. If these things are big, it makes it more likely for your airway to collapse. So that's sort of what I got involved with in terms of understanding the pathogenesis of sleep apnea. Why, why do you develop it? Well, I mean, sleep apnea appears to you know, get worse with time and weight and age, et cetera. But I thought always it was the, um, you know, the collapse of the tissues because they lost their muscle tone. Yeah. So that's, I think that's controversial. Um, I do think everybody, you lose muscle tone when you go off to sleep, but I, I think it's, it's probably similar to everyone. So when you take a normal subject, for instance, and we've done imaging in normal subjects and upper airway imaging with sort of an MRI, and you look at them awake and asleep, and their airways relatively large to start with, but when they go off to sleep, it gets smaller. So you're right, there's a, a change in muscle tone, but it doesn't get small enough to develop apnea. Where you take somebody with sleep apnea who starts off with a smaller airway, Again, that could be related to the fact that they've got abnormal craniofacial structures, so there's their jaws back, or they have big soft tissues, which is why obesity is tied to sleep apnea. So they reduce their airway as well, maybe a similar manner in terms of reduction in tone, but because they started out with a smaller airway, they now develop apnea. Well, from what, I've read, from what I've read, we only have um, 0.6 to 0.8 inches of tracheal diameter anyway to start with. So, like, I've noticed, you know, if I lay in bed on my side, you know, I have, I have apnea on my back, uh, sometimes on my side. But I noticed when I lay and I, I let everything relax, I can feel like, you know, the arm that I lay on presses up against the side of my throat and then it dinges my throat a bit. And then the top arm, you know, I hug a pillow, but if I don't watch out, that top arm travels up towards my neck on the other side and it dinges the other side of my neck. So it's, it, I would think, like, the biomechanics of sleep from the outside, you know, like your mattress pillow, et cetera, all that would, all, would, would help narrow and constrict the airway. So it doesn't, it's not that simple. And it's not really your neck or your trachea where you're running into trouble. It's basically behind the jaw. And 
almost even a little higher up. It's where, and it's hard to visualize this because you can't really, when you open your mouth, you don't see this. But if you looked on an MRI, it's the airway that's most often narrowed is right behind the soft palate. And when you, when you do an MRI with your mouth closed, the soft palate sits on the back of your tongue. So that's where the airway, so it's, it's actually higher up. It's not in your neck. It's behind your jaw. And so that's where the, it is. Sometimes it, it, you can get it at the base of the tongue, which would be a little lower around where your hyoid bone is. So that's starting to get into your neck, but it's just the beginning of it. So it's not usually your neck. It's more the, it's more the pharynx that gets you into trouble where the narrowing but, occurs. So is it different for people that are nose breathers versus mouth breathers? Like if you breathe one of two ways, I would think the obstruction, the, you know, where it's at, it affects your breathing differently. That's a great question, and you're correct. It, it is different. How, how different it is, we don't really understand. Because once, so if you're a nose breather, it, it's, it is a little bit more straightforward. So because then the soft palate sits on the back of your tongue, and everybody's with their mouth closed, and then you sort of can make some comparisons, and you're correct. I mean, it depends on where it narrows. Once you open your mouth, everything changes, and the anatomy changes, and the soft palate raises up, and then that depends on how much you're opening your mouth. And so that's obviously not something that's easily controllable. So we don't really understand that very well. We, when, when I do my work, everybody breathes through their nose. So I don't look at mouth breathers because they, because it, it completely messes up your anatomy. But you're correct. It, the obstruction may be in a very different place if you open your mouth versus keeping your mouth closed. And also how much you open your mouth. So, it's, so that becomes complicated. And then, too, the position you sleep in, like on your side, the first yeah. glance, it's like, why would someone still have apnea or snoring? But, I, you know, I know it's people start out on their back because usually and then go to their side, but then it, you know, it still there's not enough relief. But, um, you know, have you looked at the physiology of those two positions as well? Yeah. So, we, um, uh, yes and no. So, it's not so easy to do MRIs in someone sleeping sideways on their side versus their back. So all the images that we do are on your back. But there's pretty good data out there, and we know that when you're on your side, your apnea is less severe than it is when you're on your back. And in fact, often we'll treat patients like that if they have positional sleep apnea, which means you have apnea on your back, it's pretty severe, but on your side you don't. So we'll treat them with to keep them off their back. Uh, and that's a primary treatment. But it is a little more complicated than this, just your back or your side. Here, the neck does matter. So if you flex your head, uh, your airway will get smaller. And if you extend your head upward, your airway will get bigger. And then rotation matters as well if you rotate to the right or left. And then you can imagine there's all, you could think about a 360 degree axis and all different kinds of shapes and positions of your head compared to your neck. And so one of the things that we don't do on a sleep study is measure neck position. Yet that's probably something we should be doing because it's not just your back or your side. You could be on your side with your neck flexed. Well, that might be worse than being on your back with your neck extended. So that matters, and we don't really understand how that works. We're actually trying to study that with you know, surface uh, tracking software. So I think that may give us an answer or maybe putting a, putting sort of a um, accelerometer or something that can measure 360 degrees on your forehead and then on your chest, we should be able to answer that. And then the motion tracking software also will get at, 
if, on the sleep study at least, if what happens when you open your mouth, because that's another thing that we don't measure, and we just talked about how your airway changes, the anatomy changes when you open your mouth, but we don't really have a good measure of mouth opening, so that's another problem. So what, what have you been able to look at? Do you use like conical beam, you know, to look at the, literally the structure of someone's, uh, the inside of their, their mouth, yeah. their pharynx and all that? Yeah, so basically we do MRIs because we could do a, a, a CT scan, but it's radiation, and so that makes it complicated. But but for the most of the studies I've published, we do MRI of the upper airway, and it gives you tremendous details about the soft tissue structures. Now, most of these images, I talked to you a little bit about sleep-related imaging, but we haven't done much of that. We've done mostly just awake imaging, and we can do static and dynamic imaging. So you can get static imaging where obviously nothing's really moving or it's averaged over three or four minutes, and then you have dynamic imaging where you're breathing. And MRI, although it's great, has never been thought to be great for bones, you can actually do a pretty good bony analysis on an MRI and look at the combination of your bones and your soft tissues so you can reconstruct the airway with the mandible and then put the soft tissues in, in there where the airway is. And so you can learn a lot with an MRI uh, in terms of the pathogenesis of sleep apnea. And you can understand things like, well, how does obesity relate to sleep apnea? And are there changes in the fat deposition around your upper airway with um, as you gain weight or if you lose weight? You can look at different structures. How does CPAP work? How does oral appliances work? Do, how does surgery work? And you can look before and after these interventions and see how the airway changes or the soft tissues change. Well, what do you notice when someone has apnea, you know, using the MRI? What changes? What's happening? Yeah, so that's a great question. So first of all, the volume of the upper airway soft tissue structure. So the volume of the tongue, the volume of the uh, lateral walls, and if you looked at the total soft tissue, we've shown that they're enlarged in patients with sleep apnea compared to controls. And then we did another study where we looked at the craniofacial structures and found that if your jaw's back, and this was a little more complicated because there's a lot of different craniofacial measurements, but there's a number of different craniofacial abnormalities that put you at risk for sleep apnea. Now, the first, the next question you might ask is why? So in the soft tissue structures, why are they enlarged? You know, it may be easy and you can say, well, it's obesity. And we'll talk about that in a second, but there's a lot of different options. It could, and, and we know that gender has an effect here. Ethnicity probably has an effect. Genetics have an effect in terms of, you know, you're, you're born with a certain size structure. And then vascular changes in terms of blood flow may matter. Trauma may matter. So there's a lot of different factors. The one that we've investigated the most is obesity. And so we showed in a study that there's a lot of fat in the tongue. So most people don't really think about fat in the tongue, right? Why, why should there be fat in the tongue? There's, we eat, we breathe, uh, we talk. So why is there any fat there? But it turns out there was an autopsy study in 2007 where, and they had no idea if these patients were, had apnea or not, but there was a lot of fat in the tongue. Even in patients who weren't all that heavy with a BMI of 25, some of them had 50% of the fat. 50% of their tongue was fat. It's typically at the base of the tongue, not the part of the tongue that we feel. Uh, so we did a study where we looked at tongue fat and obese apnics and obese controls, and we found that in apnics, about 33% of their tongue was fat versus controls about 28%. And that 5cc difference was a big deal. And it's not, and it's fat only in the tongue. So we looked at the masseter muscle, which is one of the muscles we used to chew, and there was only 5% fat there, and that was the same in the apnics and controls. So it wasn't as if every upper airway muscle had a lot of fat in it. 
So that was the first study. And then we did a second study, which was just published uh, in January, and it got, got a lot of press. It was on CNN, and a, a, lot, of different pre a lot of different networks picked up on this. Um, but we looked at the effect of weight loss on apnea, severity of apnea, and what happened with it. So what happened, so the findings basically were that if you lost weight, and your apnea hypopnea index, or the metric of sleep apnea, which is the metric of sleep apnea, or the severity of sleep apnea, improved when you lost weight. And the reason for that was, and the, the mediation of that was reductions in tongue fat. So the primary factor that showed why people got, that explained why people got better were reductions in tongue fat. So we think tongue fat's actually an well, important it, driver here. Was it tongue fat alone, or was it... Uh... So you know, there were other fat on all the soft tissues of the palate. Yeah. So well, so we looked at abdominal fat and fat around the neck, um, and but the factors. I mean, there were some other factors. The, ter the pterygoid, which is another upper array muscle, and the lateral walls also were reduced in size. But we did a mediation analysis to try to explain well which factor was explaining the reduction in apnea apnea index or the improvement in apnea, and it turned out that tongue fat was the primary driver across all, in all these people. So it may not be the only factor, but it clearly is an important factor. And it's not something that we have never really talked about. I mean, people don't think about tongue fat, uh, or most what, I do. Was it because they made the tongue fatter, or was it, did it somehow change the action of the muscles that comprise the tongue so they couldn't move in the way that they wished to move? So that's a great question. So we don't know. I mean, it, it clearly reductions in tongue fat reduce the size of your tongue. So that's clear. But whether it has effects on the function of the tongue isn't as clear to me. And it may be a combination of both because when you have fat in your tongue, it's not, it's marbled into, it's like a steak. It's marbled into the muscle bands. So the question is, if you now reduce fat in there, are you going to improve the muscle bands, which may be, or is it just a size phenomenon? Um, and we don't know that. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting is that if people play instruments, um, or you play the didgeridoo, or you do sort of speech therapy type exercises, those patients, their apnea gets better. And so one hypothesis is that, well, maybe it gets better because you reduce tongue fat. We don't know that. And so we showed that if you lose weight, you lose tongue fat. But maybe if you just went on a low-fat diet and didn't lose any weight, well, maybe that would work as well. We don't know that yet. But, there's, but it was clear, at least in our study, that reductions in tongue fat improved apnea apnea index or, their, or the severity of your apnea. But the why is still probably not known. We could try to maybe answer that with animal studies, actually. Well, beyond the tongue, you said that uh, the tissues are enlarged. Do you see that when a person goes to sleep, the tissues are one way and the tissues actually expand as they're falling asleep or as they're sleeping, or are they just inflamed? Or, I mean, what do you mean by they're enlarged and when does it happen? So the enlargement is over time. So the enlarge is, is do they just get bigger or smaller with weight gain or weight loss, right? But what, what happens when you have an apnea? So your tongue, let's say it's big now, and, the, and your airway's not that large to start with. And now you go off to sleep and that tongue moves. It doesn't get bigger. But instead of being in the position it is when you have complete tone, it relaxes and it moves, let's say, back into your airway. And that's why you start having apnea. So the larger your tongue, the larger your soft palate, the larger the lateral walls, when you go off to sleep, they're more likely to collapse because, and make your airway smaller. Now, even in normals, your air, you do the same thing, but your airway starts off at a bigger size so it doesn't get you into trouble. But if your airway is narrow to start with, 
they're going to move. It's more about movement rather than getting bigger. Now, there could be some effect of blood flow and different things, I guess. When you go off to sleep, we don't really know that, but it's more about motion. So the studies that we're going to start doing, we're going to try to start doing, is doing MRI awake and asleep. We've done some of these before, but not in not carefully enough to truly understand that question. What structures are moving? And so in some of our studies, we've looked at centroids of structures, which is a three-dimensional centroid of a structure, and you can break it into different quadrants. We've done that with the tongue. And so we try to understand how those structures move with weight loss, for instance. How do those structures move when you put an oral appliance into the mouth? So understanding how they're moving, we would do the same thing with awake and asleep to try to understand how the structures move when you go off to sleep. I don't think the volume of the structures change much, but it's but they're definitely moving, and that gets you into trouble for sleep apnea. Well, when I know you know when you like flex your muscles, they change shape. So I would think that not only when you fall asleep, your muscles relax and they change shape because of that, but now because of the lack of tone, they're not activated they allow the tongue and other structures to move to places they normally wouldn't move to in an awake state. So I, I would think those two things are in play. That may happen. Um, the tongue's a little weird, though, because unlike every other muscle in the body, it doesn't have two insertions. So it's like a, an elephant's um, uh, not nose, right, or whatever they call that. But it's similar to it to because it doesn't have two insertions it only has one insertion so it's not like your biceps muscle where you have two insertions you only have one so like an elephant's trunk sorry it moves well, up and it's down anchored. it's only anchored it, at one point right anchored at one point so it may be a very different muscle now the other muscles are not true like master all these other muscles in the upper airway have two insertions but the tongue isn't and so that makes it a unique and maybe a little harder to understand but i think you're right i think it does probably move uh, in, in places that it, it shouldn't, but I think a lot of that's still based on the, the primary problem, in my view, is that the, the structures are too large. And so you start off with a small airway, and when it moves, it doesn't have to move too far to get you to snore. It doesn't have to move too far to get you to have partial airway obstruction. And it doesn't have to move too far to get you to actually have a complete apnea if you're already at risk before you go off to sleep. And again, it may be worse on your back versus on your side, or maybe worse when you flex your neck or extension, all those things will contribute to it. What about the relative distances between objects in your mouth and throat? Have you looked at, you know, in an awake state versus in a sleep state, maybe those ratios and distances change in such a way as to, you know, worsen apnea or allow it to happen? Yeah, we have not looked, we haven't done enough awake and sleep to go that way, but you may be right that those will be very interesting questions because that gets into the craniofacial structures, right? If your mouth is small, so if your chin's back, what we call retronathia, that puts you at risk for sleep apnea. If your hard palate, that's the part of the roof you look up on, is narrowed, that puts you at risk for apnea because you guess have a small, it's basically having a small house or a small box. And so those different measurements, especially in retronath, in a patient with who's retronathic and those kind of linear measurements may be really important. We just don't know that yet. Yeah, I guess the more, <laughs> I'm sorry, the more you're telling me, the more I'm thinking about all the, the possibilities that come to mind. One more thing that, that came to my mind is if you breathe through your nose, the temperature of the air that you breathe is one thing. If you breathe through your mouth, I would think due to evaporation and, you know, a bigger opening and, and you know, the nose not warming the air is that you might be breathing slightly colder air. Maybe that would shrink the tissue appreciably or not. Then I wondered about CPAPs, you know, do they just give you room temperature air? Do they try to warm it or cool it? Does that change the, uh, the dimensions of what's going on inside your throat? 
Yeah, those are all really good questions. I don't think we know the answer to the first one in terms of breathing through your nose, your mouth, and from a temperature effect. I mean, as much as your mouth is, when you open your mouth, obviously, if you're running, right, you breathe through your mouth, not your nose, because you want to get increased cross-sectional area. But when you're, you know, you Typically, people who are opening their mouth during sleep, it's not wide open. It's only open a little bit. And then the, and the airway is still small, and the soft palate is just sort of fluttering in your airway. So it is more likely to snore if you have your mouth open because the, the soft palate is off your tongue. But I don't think we know the effect of temperature. We do know something about temperature with CPAP. So when, we, when CPAP first started in the probably late 80s or early 90s, there was no humidification. So everybody had basically cold, dry CPAP. And I still have patients who do that, uh, use that, and they were from that era, and they hate humidification. And probably, I don't know, 10 to 15 years ago, heated humidifiers were, were added to CPAP. And, they're, and we use them now on everyone. Um, and you can change it. So in, in the winter, typically, the patients turn on more humidification. In the summer, they may turn it completely off. Um, but it's hot, it's warm, and some patients don't like that, especially patients who are used to sort of the cold sort of CPAP feel. And you give them a heat humidifier, and they go, All right, this is terrible, I can't do this. And so, but we don't know, again, the effect. I mean, CPAP works, so it's hard to, it w- I think it would be hard to know the effect of temperature on, and could you use, for instance, be interesting study. Could you use a lower CPAP setting in somebody who wasn't using, using heated humidification versus someone who, who was, or vice versa? We don't know that, um, but we do use it routinely uh, for comfort. And I do think there's one of the things that happens to your airway if it dries out, your si- and if your sinuses dry out, they start to leak. Actually, you start having increased mucus production. So people who have increased mucus often, or just a lot of secretions with CPAP, we usually increase the humidification. That usually, that typically helps. Yeah, and then also too, when when someone's sleeping and they're going through their breathing cycle or having apnea, what are the tissues doing? You know, for a normal breather, have you looked at that? You know, awake versus asleep, or at least asleep. How do their tissues move as they breathe? Do the tissues, you yeah. know, reciprocate and move in a certain way sympathetically yeah. as someone breathes? All good questions. So we have not looked at it much during, in fact, we haven't looked at it at all during sleep. Uh, hold on. Um, the, we have looked at it during wakefulness. We published a paper on, on this last year. So in wakefulness, we know a lot about the differences between normals and controls. I mean, normals and apnex, but we don't know, we don't really know much about sleep yet. Uh, but we're going to start doing those studies. So but it's going to take some time, but we, but I think it, they could be very different, actually. So just breathing may be very different awake to asleep in, again, in controls and apnex, I think will be interesting to see. And then there's the progression too, as you go through the sleep stages, you know, again, less oh, yeah. has it. REM sleep, you're even more relaxed and paralyzed. So from what I've heard, apnea and snoring are worse in that stage. So I mean, another thing to look at too is how the structure is moving and changing relative distances and all that as you go through sleep stages. It's totally true. Actually, snoring, for whatever reason, is not worse in REM, maybe because your your tone's down. Apnea is worse in REM. Snoring is typically worse in stage two sleep. But it will be really interesting just looking at both static and dynamic imaging and imaging during apnea. So you can imagine this would be, we're going to get a wealth of data because if if you can image them while they're awake, so you have an idea what their airway is and where the soft tissues are and the craniofacial structures. Now you let them go off and you do both static and dynamic imaging. Now you let them go off to sleep. If you can get them in the different stages of sleep, stage two, three, and REM, and, and then you look again, what's happening statically, dynamically, that you're going to learn a ton. And then 
in the apnex, not so much in the controls, but in the apnex, they're also going to have periods where they have apnea, right? So not only you'll get periods where they don't have apnea, but then you're going to have periods where they have apnea. Uh, so there's going to be a lot going on. So these studies are going to be hard to do because we're going to do them at, at midnight and let people fall asleep. But um, and it, and it's challenging because you've got to get people into the hospital at that time and 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 get subjects. But we're going to start to do it. So we'll see how it goes. So have I just requested like millions of dollars worth of imaging with all my questions? No, we're doing it anyway. But it's it's it doesn't cost that much money, and so nobody uses scanners at at midnight, right? So it's not like we're competing with anybody else. So from that standpoint, it's it's kind of cost effective, and we'll bring our own technicians in. But the uh, but it's it's hard for the patients. I mean, it's not so easy to get somebody to come in at eleven o'clock to get hooked up because you have to wear a cap, and then you're going to be there for a couple hours. And so how do you get home at two in the morning? Um, there, there's some logistical challenges, this to say the least. Uh, but nonetheless, I think we'll be able to get it started. You know, one other parameter I thought of is again, um, when I've heard people's body temperature will start to fall, and that not only signals sleep but allows them to fall asleep. So, has anyone looked at how body temperature changes versus stage of sleep and duration? You know, how far you are along in sleeping, and maybe that you know, if the body temperature changes a few degrees. Again, it may constrict the tissues. Uh, body temperature may go up. You know, let's say in apnics, people with apnea, maybe the body temperature never falls enough because they're constantly having periods of wakefulness. I mean, who knows? Yeah, I don't think we know that. I mean, there's been a lot on body temperature and circadian rhythms because it's a sign of circadian changes. And so we, so you, you can look at core body temperature nadir and give an idea about circadian rhythm. I don't know if anyone's lo looked at that related to sleep apnea. Um, I mean, I get a lot from patients coming in that, well, my wife or husband wants the bed warmer, I want it colder, and so they, there's a there's a lot of pull and tug there in terms of different temperatures for bed partners, <laughs> and so that I think is an issue, and I, I think there are some beds now that can change temperature on half the side versus the other side, um, but if but that would be an once you have that kind of bed, then you could probably do a, a relatively simple study where you said, okay, I'm going to put your bed at a certain temperature. We're not going to treat your apnea, uh, but we're going to track what position you're in and all that kind of stuff and see, well, what's your, what's your apnea apnea index? And let's say you did it at home for a week because it could be easy and go at one temperature and then you make it at another temperature, hotter or colder, you could probably answer that question. Yeah, I know there's uh, devices that cool the bed, you know, like this uh, chili pad, I know it cools the bed and it's supposed to help people sleep better and all that. So it'd be interesting maybe to, to talk to them and work with them on their product and maybe use it and see how it affects them. Just an idea. Yeah, I, I think that would be interesting. I mean, smart beds are coming. I mean, beds, I think, for the longest time have been kind of dumb. I think they're going to become smart and where you can measure sensors, pressures, maybe desaturations, breathing. I think you're going to find that in the future, and I'm not quite there yet, but I think there's going to be smart beds that measure a number of different physiologic signals uh, that may be really helpful, including temperature. So, um, I've just been asking you millions of questions, but what what kind of really unique or surprising things have you discovered if we if we haven't covered them already based on so your research so far? Yeah, right? so the the, there's been a couple. Of the, I mean, again, the tongue fat is the newest, and that, that, that could really change how we treat sleep apnea if you think about different ways of getting rid of tongue fat. And I think it totally it helps explain the pathogenesis of sleep apnea to obesity and also helps to explain why when you lose weight, you get better. So I think those are all made – that's a major finding. The other, the other thing that we had done a long time ago or 15 years ago is we looked at um, – 
changes in, in nobody really paid any attention to the lateral walls of the airway they paid attention to the soft palate and to the tongue but the lateral structures were kind of ignored and yet we showed in multiple studies that the lateral structures are important whether you put somebody on CPAP for instance and the tongue and soft palate hardly move at all but the lateral walls thin and so it's pretty impressive that the lateral walls are and that's why the people get better and if you give somebody an oral appliance which is and again, it was only one oral appliance, it's hard to know, but most oral appliances are thought to move the tongue and soft palate forward to improve apnea. But it turned out that there was a, an effect on the lateral walls. And also, even when in this weight loss study, there was reductions in lateral walls. And when we looked at dynamic imaging, the lateral walls were the structures that were moving much more than the tongue and soft palate. So it turns out that the lateral walls are a major player in sleep apnea. And if you're thinking about surgery or anything outside of CPAP, you have to pay attention to the lateral walls. So I think that was, that was an important uh, finding. So those would be the two anatomic yeah. findings that we, we, I think, made a big difference with. The yeah, other thing that... Oh, go ahead. Um, one of the, I mean, the the other thing that I thought was that we was clever that we've sort of developed is that, obviously, looking, if you look at most papers on sleep apnea, they're all about historic symptoms, and there's very little physical examination done because it's hard to do it. How do you look inside somebody's mouth? And so we developed a technique where you can put a laser ruler effectively in the back of a mouth. So you take a laser beam and you take it basically a laser pointer, and it goes through a beam splitter. Um, and so you can put that into somebody's mouth, and now you have a ruler in the back of the mouth because we know it's a centimeter apart. And you can do, you can, you can take, you can do a movie, or we can do digital pictures with that. And so you can get an idea. You can actually quantify the sizes of some of the structures in the mouth without putting calibers in or figuring out other ways. And I think that's important um, because we don't really do a great physical exam in sleep apnea. So I think this is one way to quantify structures, which uh, without doing an imaging study. Also, the, the airflow itself, I would think, uh, you know, starting out with a smaller passage, you'd maybe you get more turbulent versus laminar airflow. And maybe that changes the, uh, you know, how the tissues react to the air passing by them. And the vacuum pressure created on inspiration may be a lot higher if you have narrower airways. And that causes some of the tissues to preferentially move more than others. I mean, there's, it's like a, it's like modeling an airplane. It's like flying. Well, yes, totally agree with that. I mean, you, you may have different laminar and turbulence flow. We don't really understand the flow patterns very well. Uh, there is, and I, we haven't done it, but you can actually image the airway with hyperpolarized helium and look at some of these flow changes and see how they go. It wasn't such a simple study to do, and there's some radiation that's involved, so I've never done it. But I think that would be a super interesting study to look at the differences between apnics and controls in terms of flow patterns. And in particular, if you did surgery on an apneic, what happened to their flow patterns pre and post-surgery? Um, or maybe even with an oral appliance. CPAP probably is going to make it not so easy to figure out. But, the, uh, but yeah, I think those kind, of, those kind of studies would be really interesting. Yeah, I mean, in a CPAP itself, do, does a device produce laminar or turbulent air, or does it matter? We would look at yeah, it may not matter because you just because you stent open the airway and we've done it's, the airway triples in size. So I think you're probably okay with CPAP, but for these other things, I think it probably would matter a lot. Yeah, maybe there's vortices created if the geometry of the, of the you know the tissues are a certain way. I mean, who knows? Yeah, there's a lot to there's a lot to look at. It's amazing. I agree. <laughs> well, very cool. Well, so what what do you think is going to be um, figured out by your research in the next couple of years? Well, I think understanding the anatomic changes and then, and ideally, if you could figure, if you really could figure out where the airway, 
where a patient collapses in their upper airway, and you understood both the dynamics and static changes, and you could really do an MRI, and you looked at this, it opens things up for surgery because the surgery hasn't worked very well, but I think part of that's because they're just operating willy-nilly at, at different locations, and, and you don't really know where the person's collapsing. But if you knew where they were collapsing, you really understood it, and then you directed your surgery at that location, I think you'd probably have a lot better outcomes. And if it didn't work, and at least if, then you could repeat that MRI and say, okay, well, okay, now maybe it worked, but now they're collapsing in another region, so you could go after that region. So I think understanding that real, if you understood the pathogenic is a sleep apnea where we started, then it would open up surgical options because people, CPAP works, but, they don't, but post patients don't like it. And if you actually had a surgical technique that was going to work, I think most people would sign, would sign up because they don't have to use CPAP anymore. Um, the problem is right now, if you sign up for that, the surgery is probably not going to work, or you maybe have a 50% chance at best. So who signs up to do surgery if they have a 50% chance that it might work or not? I mean, I don't think most people would do that. Um, so I think that's, that's interesting. And then I, there's going to be new therapies for sleep apnea, and we, we're involved with some of the mechanisms of these things, like hypoglossal nerve stimulation. How does that work? And so I think there's understanding them. One of the things that I, I think are impor- is important in my view is that understanding the mechanism, mechanisms of how a treatment works is really important. So that we're, we're going to push in that area as well. Well, very good. Well, Rich, what's the best way for people to keep tabs on your progress and ask questions and see what you're doing? Um, I think just pay attention. I mean, you can just look me up and I'm, I'm not really, <laughs> I'm not on Twitter or any of these other things, but the, uh, I think if you just, if you search me on PubMed, you'll get most of the articles and you'll be able to read what we've done and then there'll be more coming out, but that's probably the simplest way. It's probably the old fashioned way. There may be better ways that I'm not sure I'm, I'm there socially yet. It's okay. No problem. Well, Rich, it's been a great call. I mean, we went into a lot of details and the, I think I gave you like, you know, probably more homework than anything else, but uh, I enjoyed having you here and I appreciate it. That's always a good, that's always a good thing. Well, thank you very much and have a great day. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.